Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, in chapter 6. <coughs> the last sermon in this series was from the end of John chapter 5. We're actually going to read this morning, though, from John chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. We'll read verses 16 through 21 together. Please follow along as I read John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's pray once more. O oh Lord, we pray that you would come now by your Spirit and meet the needs of our hearts. Please minister to us. Please feed us. Please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 6 is a weighty passage, not only because it's so long, over 70 verses, but because it's so rich with theological truth. John 6 is all about bread. First, in the miraculous provision of bread to a crowd numbering in the thousands. That's in the first 15 verses, the verses that I didn't read this morning. And then in the famous bread of life discourse, which begins in verse 22 and runs until the end of the chapter, where Jesus explains that he himself is the bread of life sent down from heaven and that all who believe in him will have eternal life and will be perfectly satisfied in him for all eternity. But nestled in John 6 are these verses, 16 through 21, which appear as a seemingly unrelated and unexplained miracle of Jesus walking on water and delivering His disciples from a great storm. So this morning, I'm actually going out of order in terms of the presentation of the material in John's gospel. I'm going to preach verses 16 through 21 today. And then next week, our brother Rex Blackburn will preach the sermon he had prepared to preach uh, last week that we had to cancel services. Uh, Rex will preach next week on the first 15 verses of John 6 on the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And that way, uh, with that miracle fresh in our minds, we can then go into the bread of life discourse, which is Jesus' interpretation of that miracle. Now, I think that's a better uh, order for preaching. Maybe not for presenting a chronological narrative uh, like John is trying to do, but in terms of getting at the heart of the text and the meaning of these passages, I think that will serve our purposes better. So this morning, I'll be looking at verses 16 through 21. Keep in mind, Jesus fed the 5,000, and then He sends His disciples across the sea to Capernaum while He Himself stays behind. And then a great storm comes and threatens to wreck the ship and to toss the disciples overboard. And it's just then that Jesus comes to them 
miraculously walking on the water. This miracle is also recorded for us in Mark 6 and Matthew chapter 14. And those accounts include much more information. In John's account, though, there's no explanation of the miracle. And there's no discourse attached to the miracle. And many details that maybe you're familiar with, if you grew up in church or are familiar with the Scriptures, they're not contained in John's account, though you'll find them in Mark 6 and Matthew 14. Well, then after, of course, this great miracle in verse 22, we pick up as if verses 16 through 21 didn't even happen. And we immediately revert back to the context of the feeding of the 5,000, which becomes the jumping off point for Jesus explaining how it is that He Himself is the bread of life. So we might ask, and I think we should ask, why does John include verses 16 through 21 in this record of Jesus walking on water? If it is sort of awkward in the way that it fits, and if it, if it yields this sort of odd break between the feeding of the 5,000 and then the explanation of that miracle in the Bread of Life discourse, why does John include it here? And the commentators are all over the map on this. They come up with all sorts of creative ways to fit into the overall structure of John 6, and I find most of their attempts at that a little bit speculative. I'll just come clean and say that I don't think I understand all the reasons why John puts this sign here and records it here. Many reasons that have been suggested I think are a little far-fetched. However, I do think at least two things are certainly true. So why does John include this account in verses 16 through 21 of Jesus walking on the water? Two things that I'm sure are true. First of all, because it happened. You're recording narrative history. John's account is generally chronological. This happened as a matter of history. Jesus fed the 5,000. He goes across the sea, and the crowds follow Him, and He explains the miracle there. Oh, and by the way, the way He got across the sea was that He walked across it and had this encounter with His disciples, and it was spectacular, and it was miraculous. But the second reason, and I think this is probably more important and more to John's purpose, second reason why this material is here is because this was another sign that Jesus performed before His disciples in order to elicit their faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I hope by now, we've repeated it so many times, the purpose statement to John's gospel. I hope all of you uh, could repeat that back to me. John 20, verse 31. What does John tell us is the purpose for writing this gospel? These things, specifically these signs that have been recorded, these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And here's another sign, one of the seven recorded in this gospel. And John wants us to look at this, say, who could do this but the Christ, the Son of God? And he wants to draw out our faith in Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. At the very least, I think that's why this account appears here. Now, the basic events of these six verses, John 6, 16 through 21, They're well known, again, if you've been churched, if you grew up in church or have been in church for any number of years, and they are reported in a very straightforward fashion. I've mentioned already that we find similar accounts in Mark and Matthew that include a little more information than we have here in John. And this particular episode in Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry has inspired countless hymns. We actually sang one just a moment ago that makes allusions to Christ being with us in the storm, Uh, countless poems. Countless Christian songs, even works of art and things like that. And more than that, it has been of immense encouragement to millions of Christian people over the centuries. 
Well, all I want to do this morning is endeavor to apply these verses to the people of God in the various storms in which we find ourselves as followers of Christ. So I wish for this sermon to be geared largely toward application and encouragement. That's my goal this morning, for you to be helped, for you to be encouraged from this passage and this sermon. Some of you are going through some very difficult things, very difficult things. We'll call them storms for the purpose of this sermon. I know because we've talked about them. And I want this sermon now and this passage to be like a balm to your soul and a help to you as you navigate the storms of this life. So I'd like to open up the text under four main headings this morning, and the first is this. All of Jesus' disciples will pass through storms in this life. All of Jesus' disciples will pass through storms in this life. Look with me again, if you would, at verses 16 through 18. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. The disciples got into a boat, as they had perhaps done thousands of times before. Remember that many of these disciples are fishermen by trade, are very familiar with navigating the sea and steering the ship. They didn't plan on a storm when they started across the Sea of Capernaum. And yet as they get further and further out into the water, the sea becomes rough, strong wind starts blowing, and just like that, they find themselves in serious trouble. I don't know if you've been out at sea uh, when a storm is coming, especially when, when winds are howling and blowing at great speeds. It's a scary situation to be in, and these disciples find themselves in the midst of a storm that threatens to wreck the ship and to throw the crew overboard. Now, storms by nature do not announce their coming. They just come. We have trouble predicting the weather today. It's funny, I, I sometimes tongue-in-cheek will commend to young people, uh, if you want job security and you don't want to fail, just become a weatherman. And if you say there's a 50% chance of something, you're always right. You can never be wrong. Okay? We have trouble predicting the weather today. It was that much harder for them to predict the weather then. And they certainly did not discern that there was anything threatening in the forecast, whatever tools were available to them, or else I don't think they would have gotten into this boat. So a simple observation for us at this point. We may start a day with no expectation of meeting with trouble or hardship. It may just come upon us suddenly as this storm came upon these disciples. Storms do not announce their coming, and yet in an instant, you can find yourself in the midst of one with a phone call, with a text message, with an email. I got a, a phone call a few weeks ago, someone very close to me, now in a life-threatening situation. Never saw that coming. Just like that, things can change. As quickly as a car crash, your life could change forever. And you could be in the midst of the greatest storm of your life and the greatest trouble of your life. However and whenever they come, make no mistake, all of Jesus' disciples will pass through storms in this life. We will all meet with adversity. This is the way that God has designed it. To be a Christian and to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ does not ensure freedom from trouble. In fact, Jesus will go on to tell His disciples in John 16, in the world, 
You will have trouble. You will have tribulation. That is his guarantee. It's possible that these disciples thought when they first began to follow Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Israel that they so gladly received back in John 1. It's possible when they first began to follow Jesus that it would be, they thought it would be smooth sailing for them from here on out. We've got the Christ. Nothing but clear waters and clear skies. My friends, that is not Christ's promise to us. He does not promise us freedom from life's storms. However, I will argue in a moment that what he does promise is far better and far sweeter. So look with me now, secondly. Jesus commands the storms of this life. All of Jesus' disciples, they'll pass through storms. Now, secondly, Jesus commands the storms of this life. In John 5, we considered this a few weeks ago, Jesus made his famous statement that just as his Father is working, he too is working. The suggestion being that Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, works at all times to uphold the universe by His sovereign power just as His Father does, thereby making Himself equal with God. And the Jews understood that to be precisely His meaning. That's why they plotted to kill Him. He's making Himself equal with God. Jesus doesn't object to that conclusion. It's precisely what He means. We saw also in the opening prologue of John's gospel that Jesus was there in the beginning with God that He Himself was God. And not only was He there in the beginning, He was the agent by which the world was created. John 1.3 tells us that all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus creates the universe and rules it by His sovereign power, which means He has command over the sky, over the wind, over the waters. And He does have command over the storms of this life. If the seas of life become rough, if the winds become strong, it is surely because He has commanded it to be so. The cancer diagnosis, the car accident, the death of a child, the envelope at work, stock market crash, the abandonment of a loved one, they all take place under the sovereign rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christian, I want to encourage you, until you make peace with that truth, your life will be hopelessly unstable. I urge you this morning, make peace with that reality. Everything in your life, the good and the bad, are under the sovereign rule of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or else the ground under your feet perpetually always will be as sinking sand for you. There is no trial, no hardship, no disappointment, no storm in this life that is outside the control of the Lord Jesus. Never forget that. Some of you are in very hard circumstances, very difficult trials, threatening storms that might make you frightened. Remember, my friend, it is all by Christ's design. He means for you to pass through the storm. The waters rise and the waves crash at His command. And I just ask you this morning, does the knowledge of that truth confound you? That this bitter cup is served to me by Christ Himself. It may confound you, but it is also meant to comfort you. The Bible wants us to be confident that nothing is outside of Christ's control. Christ is over the storms of this life. My friend, He knows. He knows precisely what you're going through, and it's by His design 
It has good purposes for you. He commands the storm. He knows right now what you're going through. He has not forgotten about you, and He will not fail you. He intends for you to pass through the storm. And I can assure you that no wave will crash over your head that He doesn't intend for your good. Jesus says to each breaking wave, you may come this far and no further. And brothers and sisters, the winds will die down and the waters will become calm and you will reach the safety of the shore not a moment sooner than he intends. And the storms will last only as long as he wills in order to fulfill his purposes for you. The narrative of John 6 goes on to tell us in verse 21 that as soon as Jesus entered the boat, they immediately reached the shore. We should see there that there was a reason that Jesus wasn't in the boat to start. Everything Jesus does is deliberate. He wasn't in the boat. He chose not to be in the boat. It was by design. There was a reason he sent a storm. It was by design. And there was a reason he came to them precisely when he did. It was all by his design. Friends, be assured that there is no storm you will pass through that is not by the design of your Savior. Everything. Everything in your life is in Christ's hands. And listen, that would not comfort you if it were not for the truth that they're good hands. They're loving hands. They're safe hands. And his promise is that he has good purposes for us even in our suffering and even in our storms. Well, now on to the third point. We've seen that all of Jesus' disciples, they pass through storms in this life. Jesus himself, who like his father is working till now, even he is working, commands the storms of this life. Now thirdly, Jesus meets his disciples in the storm. Jesus meets his disciples in the storm. Look again with me if you would at verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. Now, in the other accounts, we learn that it's because they didn't know it was Jesus. They thought it might have been a ghost or something like that. They were frightened. Verse 20. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, the disciples were without Jesus for some time at sea, far enough to get a few miles out into the water. And it would appear that they were abandoned to the storm. John goes out of his way to note, actually, in verse 17. He says, it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And maybe that's where you are right now. Still dark, and Jesus has not yet come to you. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says in his commentary on this text. He says, quote, we are told that the disciples were sent over the lake by themselves while their master tarried behind. And then we see them alone in a dark night, tossed about by a great wind on stormy waters, and worst of all, Christ not with them. It was a strange transition from witnessing a mighty miracle, talking about the feeding of the 5,000, from witnessing a mighty miracle and helping it instrumentally amidst an admiring cloud to solitude to darkness, winds, waves, storm, anxiety, and danger. And Ryle says the change was very great. But Christ knew it, and Christ appointed it 
and it was working for their good. The disciples were seemingly alone on stormy waters. Waves are crashing over them. The wind blew them about, and it seemed that their Lord was far off and perhaps had abandoned them. This is a desperate situation for these men. Their experience was perhaps like that of the psalmist in Psalm 42, where the psalmist writes, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Like like the waves are crashing over my head, the wind is blowing in my face, and I can't find my Lord. Where is he? These disciples are perhaps screaming the Lord Jesus' name at the night in the face of the winds and the waves and the storm. I wonder, my brother, my sister, have you ever felt that way? In the dark, amidst the wind and the waves, and you can't find Jesus. He just seems far off. And you wonder, has he left me? Has he abandoned me? You might have felt like these disciples here. I want to quote Charles Spurgeon to you. This quote from Spurgeon came to me in the midst of one of my greatest storms, and it breathed new life into my soul, and I hope it's an encouragement to you as well. Listen to what Spurgeon says, a man very familiar with the storms of this life. I bear my witness that the worst days I have ever had have turned out to be my best days. And when God has seemed most cruel to me, he has then been most kind. If there is anything in this world for which I would bless him more than for anything else, it is for pain and affliction. I am sure that in these things the richest, tenderest love has been manifested to me. Our Father's wagons rumble most heavily when they are bringing us the richest freight of the bullion of his grace. Love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes. The cloud that is black with horror is big with mercy. Fear not the storm. It brings healing in its wings. And when Jesus is with you in the vessel, the tempest only hastens the ship to its desired haven. Friends, sometimes it may appear that he is not with us for a season, that the Lord is far off, and that he has abandoned us. But my friend, he does not abandon his disciples. He never does. He does not stand off from his disciples forever. He will not let their souls be lost. He will come to them, and he will make them safe and secure, and he will say to them in a voice louder than the thunder, louder than the storm, it is I. Do not be afraid. Friends, the storms of life are worth it if we find Jesus in their midst. If he comes to us and meets us. Listen again to J.C. Ryle. Let all true Christians take comfort in the thought that their Savior is Lord of the waves and winds, of storms and tempests, and can come to them in the darkest hour walking upon the sea. I like that language. It's like, it's like the storm was a highway for Jesus to come to them. Your suffering can be like a highway for Jesus to come to you. He'll come to you on your suffering, on the storm, and meet with you. Wild goes on to say, 
There are waves of trouble far heavier than any on the Lake of Galilee. There are days of darkness which try the faith of the holiest Christian. But let us never despair if Christ is our friend. He can come to our aid in an hour when we think not and in ways we did not expect. And when He comes, all will be calm. When you become a Christian, you do not get a life free from storms, but you get something better. You get Him. You get the Lord through the storm, in the midst of the storm. He's pleased to come to you and to meet you and to save you. You learn to say with the hymn writer, though great distress my soul befell, the Lord my God did all things well. One Christian from church history who was very familiar with storms and trials and tribulations was the poet and hymn writer William Cooper, or Cowper, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R. William Cooper was best friends with John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, great pastor. And Cooper served as curate at Newton's church in Olney in the late 18th century, north of London. And together they published a hymn book together, very famous. That's where Amazing Grace first appeared, by Newton. And Cooper's hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, and many other classics. What's not so well known about Cooper is that for most of his adult life, he suffered from severe depression and bouts of insanity. He even tried to kill himself multiple times. It is almost certain that he would have succeeded in doing so if not for the enduring love and active intervention of a number of important Christian friends in Cooper's life, including John Newton. There are accounts in Newton's diary of him uh, being awoken in the very middle of the night. and He'd go across this field to Cooper's house and he'd find there what he would call a great dispensation of blood, clearly a suicide attempt. And he would sit and hold Cooper's hand and pray with him and read the scripture to him. In the midst of one of the most trying seasons of Cooper's life, which ever after was referred to as the storm, his word, not mine, he wrote what is perhaps his most famous hymn, that is, God moves in a mysterious way. I want to read some of its verses to you. This is what Cooper writes, actually in the very midst of one of his severest episodes of depression and suicidal thoughts. He says this, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Cooper knew what it was like to find Jesus in the midst of the storm. My friend, he will always meet his, disciple, his disciples in the midst of life's storms. And as Ryle says, in our darkest hours we may seem to be left, but we are never really alone. And that leads to my fourth and final point this morning. 
We've seen that all of Jesus' disciples will pass through storms in this life, that Jesus commands the storms of this life, and that Jesus meets his disciples in the storm. Now, fourthly and finally, and this is really a point of application, the disciples of Jesus never have reason to be afraid. The disciples of Jesus, the followers of Christ, never have reason to be afraid. The only words that John records in this whole episode are from Jesus. And there's seven of the most precious words he ever gives to his disciples. It is I. Do not be afraid. It's the only words we have. If my first three points are true, that all of Jesus' disciples will pass through storms in this life, that Jesus commands the storms of this life, and that Jesus meets his disciples in the storm, then Jesus' disciples never have reason to be afraid. That's a different thing from saying we never are afraid. We're often afraid. My point is, and I think the point of this text, is that we never have reason to be afraid, which is a blessed thought. That there's no good reason I could supply to you for why a Christian needs to be frightened or afraid if Jesus is their friend and their Lord and their Savior. It's a wonderful thought. And from an experiential standpoint, I think it's one of the greatest things about being a Christian. Christians don't get afraid of the dark, or at least they don't need to. Christians don't need to fear the future. They don't need to. We do often, but we don't need to. Not if... The Lord Jesus is sovereignly orchestrating the events of our lives. To know that I am eternally secure in Christ. To know, as I'm told in Hebrews 13, that he will never leave me or forsake me, as so many others might do throughout my life. Some of you know painfully what that is like. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. To know, as he says in John 10, that he has given me eternal life and that I will never perish and that no one will snatch me out of his hands. To know, as I'm told in Romans 8, that nothing will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. And to know, as he says in Matthew 28, that he will be with me always, even to the end of the age. To know that he will be with me through the storms of this life. It's one of the greatest blessings of being a Christian. And that's why I say from an experiential standpoint, this is one of the most wonderful things about being a Christian, one of the most stabilizing things about being a Christian. Christians have in Christ the most solid foundation for psychological and emotional and spiritual security. Now, I'm not saying that we believe in Christianity because it's some sort of psychological crutch for us. A lot of people criticize Christians on that ground. Now, we believe we have epistemological certainty in the Bible. And God's revelation of himself through his spirit, that's the ground. But I'm talking about Christian experience. There is psychological stability in the knowledge that Christ Jesus is my Lord and Savior and that he commands the winds and the waves. And I have no reason to be frightened. My brother, sister, you have no reason to be afraid if Jesus is your Savior. And there are people, there are people, who have lots of things they ought to be afraid of. But we who are in Christ don't know those things. We need not be frightened. So I ask you, Christian, have you allowed this thought to have its full effect in your life and heart? That through Christ there is no need for fear. I'm convinced this is one of the things that made the apostles so effective and so full of faith in the days following Jesus' resurrection. They're just totally fearless. Totally fearless. 
Christ was with them. He promised not to leave them. And with full confidence in His power and His grace, they accomplished feats of faith on an unprecedented scale. Now, to be clear, I'm not commending a sort of cavalier self-confidence, some sort of naive triumphalism in the Christian life. I don't think Christians should act as though they're invincible and immune and impervious to harm. We can be harmed. We can be hurt. But what I am commending is a sober confidence in Christ who is always with us and whose promise is that He will never leave us or forsake us. And I am commending confidence that we can face trials of life without fear because of who He is and what He pledges to do for all those who hope in Him. And that, my friend, is a blessed thought. And if you have this truly rooted in your heart, this truth that we have no reason for fear, then you can say, when you approach your final day with David in Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Not because I'm so self-sufficient, I just have the wherewithal to get my emotions together. I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. Reminiscent of those words in our text, it is I, do not be afraid. No need to fear because I am with you. You can say with David in Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 46, God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though my spouse disappoints me, though I have these feelings that seem so out of control sometimes, though my prodigal child is so far from Christ, though I don't know where my bread is coming from next month, We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And in our text this morning, Jesus says to his disciples in the midst of the storm, it is I, do not be afraid. These words are reminiscent of something Jesus will say later on in this gospel as he anticipates his death. Before that great storm of the crucifixion, going to the cross to suffer and to die, Jesus says in John 14 to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. Maybe one or two of them remembered how he came to them in the storm. There's never a reason for the Christian to fear because Christ is with us through the storm. And so to our Chinese brothers and sisters that we've been praying for, Facing the storm of governmental oppression, Jesus says, it is I. Do not be afraid. To our brothers and sisters in northern Iraq who face the storm of opposition from family and friends, even to the point of death threats, like our brother Sa'ad who we prayed for last time, Jesus says, it is I. Do not be afraid. And for brothers and sisters in this church, whether you're facing the storms of depression and anxiety Storms of trying to navigate an embattled marriage or of watching a prodigal child destroy their lives, of facing the storm of a cancer diagnosis or the persistent failure of a spouse or a loved one, of facing a storm brought on by your own sin and failure, of facing that final storm of death itself. If you are a Christian, no matter what storm you are facing, Christ's words to you are the same, it is I. Do not be afraid. 
I'm with you. I will help you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will fulfill my promise and work all things for your good. I have pledged my very blood for your salvation. I will not abandon you to the waves and to the winds. I will come to you, and I'll deliver you from the raging sea. Let not your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. My final word is directly to those of you who are presently stranded on stormy waters. And you know who you are. Maybe you're still in verse 17. It's still dark. And Jesus has not yet come to you. And all you hear is the thunder. You feel the waves crashing over you. Feel the wind in your face. And you can't find your Lord. My friend, this is God's word to you this morning. I really believe this. I believe the Lord wants to say this to you through this text. He will come to you. He will come to you. I urge you, watch for him. Wait for him. Pray for him to come. And listen for him. In words louder than the storm, it is I. Do not be afraid. Let's pray. Lord, so many of us in this room are from situations and backgrounds and life circumstances that in so many ways were frightening. And so many of us have been through storms in life that have frightened us. And some of us even now are in the midst of storms that frighten us. With all that in mind, we could not have dreamed up a better salvation that through Christ we have nothing to fear. That you, Lord Jesus, are pleased to come to us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our storms, and to speak comfort to us and to help us and to do your work in our hearts to bring about faith until we're delivered to the shore. There's nothing better, Father, than being a Christian being a follower of your son, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that you've made it so, so many of our hearts, making us followers of the Lamb, followers of the Savior, and casting out all fear. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with faith, that you would come to some even now, convince them of this truth, that Jesus stands with them, that he's with us, that he helps us, that he calls to us. It is I, do not be afraid. And may they have its effect in our hearts and in our lives until we reach that final shore of glory. Fulfill all of your promises, we pray. We know that you will. In Jesus' name, amen.